On this episode of The Growth Show, we talked to Jason Fried, the founder and CEO of Basecamp. So in general, I think that if you, if you ask people um, where they go when they need really, or where they would go when they really needed to get work done, so like if you had to get something done, where would you go? Very few people would say the office. and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Dave Gerhart, and I'm joined today by Jason Fried. He's the founder and CEO of Basecamp, the co-author of Getting Real, Remote, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Rework. And he's a frequent speaker on stuff like management and leadership, changing the way we work, a lot of the topics that we'd like to talk about on this podcast. Hey, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I was doing a bunch of prep, and I had all these things I wanted to ask you, and then this whole uh, New York Times Amazon workplace story started out, uh, came out, and so I figured... We'd start there because I saw you guys uh, over at Basecamp had an interesting take on this and figured that might be a, a good place to start. So um, first, just kind of want to get get your take on this story. So for the people that maybe haven't read, there was basically this six month. New York Times did six months of research, you know, probing into Amazon and just really went deep on the long hours people work and some of the competitive uh, culture stuff that goes on there. What was your take on that whole story? Well. Um if if the place is described or is as described, it's not a place I'd want to work or a place <laughs> that I'd want to create. Yeah, um, I think every workplace has its challenges and its stuff, right? But they, they clearly seem to have talked to a wide variety of people, um, not just three, because every company has a few disgruntled employees or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. This was a, a broad, um, a broad. It seems like a, a broad research project into a bunch of people's experience there, and didn't it didn't sound great. I think it's. It sounds like it's it's a systemic issue, um, and uh, it's. I, I hope they I hope they make some changes over there because it just doesn't sound like a pleasant place to be. And and to support a company, you know, I'm a huge Amazon fan, a huge customer. I've been a customer f- since the beginning. I buy almost everything from them. I want to make sure that I feel good about doing business with a company that treats its employees properly. Yeah. So so you guys wrote about this, and it was interesting because Jeff Bezos basically wrote a pl- reply to that whole thing and said. He had no idea, um, and you, you know you, your take on that was kind of like it's it's not surprising that he had no idea. Yeah, and and I know Jeff. Uh, Jeff's just an investor in Basecamp, um, and uh, I, I, I've talked to him many times, met him in person many times. Um, Jeff's a wonderful person, and I actually believe that he was surprised by this. Yeah. I, I truly believe that, and he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who'd, who'd say that that's okay in any way. Um, what happens though is, is, especially big organizations, the CEO is often, it, it actually doesn't matter what size the organization is, the CEO is often the last to know about anything. And especially when it comes to things like this, they're almost always the last to know because people are afraid to tell them about these sorts of things. And uh, it's, it's not a surprise to me that, that he's surprised. Um, I think, as we wrote in the article, the, the, you know, the interesting thing about this sort of stuff is not, now what do you do? You know, how do you if you really are, are, if you really feel like it's a terrible thing, and, and, and you're surprised by it, you know what? What can you do to to change yeah. that? And just just to be clear, like um, what Amazon has built is phenomenal, and Jeff Bezos doesn't really need anyone's advice on on how to build a company. 
but um, I'm sure that he's, you know, he's, he's a really good human being. I know that for a fact, and like this probably disturbs him, and I think he'll be curious about getting to the bottom of it, and how that happens is certainly up to how, you know, however they want to handle that. Yeah, so, so one of the reasons I wanted to ask you was um, we have a lot of execs that listen to the show. What, you know, you're a CEO yourself, like how, no matter what the size of your company is, how can you make it so that you don't necessarily lose your finger on that pulse? Like maybe when your company has, you know, 10 employees and you're all sitting in the same room together, it's easier for you to see like what's actually happening. But as you start to scale, like how do, how do you make sure that you can still stay involved in the day to day, you know, just the regular people at work and how they're feeling? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because as we're sitting here right now, I'm certain that there are unspoken things about our company that I do not know about. Of right? Every every CEO will go through that scenario. Um, the only way I've found to ever even have a closer or a better pulse on what's going on is to ask questions. Because you cannot expect people just to volunteer information. People don't typically just volunteer information. Um, if you were to ask all your employees how things were going, genuinely, curiously, you know, seriously, and you ask them, um, they would tell you things that they would never just volunteer, but they would tell you because you asked them a question. So we've gotten a lot better about asking regular questions to, to our employees about how do you think we're doing? Is there anything we're dropping the ball on? Are our benefits good enough? What are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? What should we be doing more of? Are there things you've seen out there that, that we think we're good at that we're not really that good at? Like questions like that, we ask those on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, we actually built a product called Know Your Company to, to do this very thing. I was just going to ask I, you tactically, yeah. tactically, how you guys actually, is it like anonymous survey? Go, go through that. It's, no, it's not anonymous. So we built a product called Know Your Company. Uh, it's at knowyourcompany.com. And I, I built it because I needed it, which was, I, I, you know, we turned about 30, we had about 30 people. Now we have close to 50, but at the time we had about 30. And I just didn't know. I didn't feel like I knew what was on everyone's mind and how people felt about things. So we built this tool that at, there's, a, there's a battery of questions, every like, like 40 or 50, and you can add more. Um, they're all managerial questions, things I, I just went over. And every week, every Wednesday, it just fires off a single question to everybody via email. And they can click a button and reply. They don't have to sign in. There's no signing into anything. They just click a button and reply. Um, it is not anonymous, though. So I'm not a big fan of anonymous feedback because I don't think it's very actionable. Um, I think that if you, if you ask people how they feel, and they just tell you anonymously. I just don't know that there's a lot you can do about that because then you got to find out who said it because you want to get into the details of the actual thing. Right. If someone's like, "It sucks here. I hate this place." Like, well, that doesn't help me. Or like, our benefits suck. Well, okay. Like, what benefits suck? I need to talk to people. I need to really get into it to find out. So we decided no anonymous feedback. And um, I think if you have a, if you have a strong enough culture, people are happy to give you feedback with their name on it because they know you're curious about it. But people typically aren't comfortable just volunteering that unless you ask them about it. So. Tactically, that's how we've done it, and there's a lot of other ways to do it, but that's that's what we found works really well. So, um, transition a little bit away from this this whole Amazon thing. If someone were to Google you, um, I, f I think like ninety nine percent of what you find is articles and interviews about you talking about the workplace, not people's actual day to day jobs, but just like the environment they work in. When did this become such a, a passion of yours, and why do you spend so much time challenging the status quo of the way that we work? Um, I think it started way back when, when I was, I don't know, 16 or 17. I, I remember I worked, actually when I was 14, um, I worked at the shoe store in, in, in my local neighborhood. And um, the owner was um, always looking over my shoulder, actually not just mine, everyone's shoulder, had an intense distrust of anybody um, and just thought everyone was ripping her off. That's just what she thought. And, and it was like, it, it was not a comfortable place to work. 
people actually ended up stealing a lot of things because they figured, well, she thought I was stealing things anyway, so I might as well steal stuff. And like, I don't like her. I don't want to work for her. So I'm going to, like, this is kind of the, she created this environment by, by creating paranoia. Right. Her, it sounds like her default was to assume that everyone was terrible. Yeah, everyone was terrible. That was her default. And because of that, people lived down to her expectations. And that's exactly what happened. And then I worked at another place where there was a manager who was similar. And then I worked at other places where managers were fantastic and had a lot of trust for people. And I just realized over the years, just working, you know, these are just part-time jobs in high school and like in the summers in college and stuff, that the, the place, the actual place, the environment and where you work and the person you work for or the people you work with, are the actual biggest differentiators. Um, it, it's, it's not necessarily the thing that you're doing. Um, that has a piece of it, but it's not even that so much. It's, it's who you interact with and what the environment's like on a daily basis that makes you happy or, or, or sad at your job, basically, or, or disgruntled or, or thrilled or passionate or whatever. Yeah. And it's not that every day is fantastic for everybody no matter what, but I wanted to create a place that I wanted to work, a place where if I was hired here, I would be happy to work here. So that's, that's how I've always felt after going through those experiences, and that's why I care about this stuff. So a couple of the topics that you that you talk about, um, I just want to kind of share share some of those. Uh, one of them is that this whole notion that meetings are toxic. Uh, yeah, I thought that meeting like, but aren't meetings like how you run a company? Don't you have to have meetings? Uh, people have to talk, <laughs> but you don't have to have meetings. <laughs> the problem I have with meetings, like t- traditional meeting, right, is that they last too long. There's too many people involved. And the amount of information conveyed in, like, in a permanent basis is extremely low. The density is very, very low. A lot of people just feel like they have to speak up to be heard. Um, things that should go on for 16, 17 minutes end up taking an hour because calendaring apps like schedule an hour. And it's, there's all these inefficiencies in meetings that just kind of drive me crazy. And they also break your day up. You have the day before the meeting and the day after the meeting. You don't have a work day. You have like work moments. And they're often punctuated by these meetings that break your day into smaller and smaller bits. And when you have smaller and smaller bits, it's a lot harder to get into the zone and actually do real work. Um, so there's a variety of reasons why I have problems with them. That said, we, we have meetings occasionally, um, but they're very small, two or three people max generally. Almost never do we have more people, sometimes four, but that's kind of it. And they last as long as they need to last. There is no time set on them um, in terms of like, we're going to spend an hour talking about this. It's that we're going to talk about this. And right. if it takes an hour and a half, that's all it takes. If it takes 12 minutes, then we're done. Um, but most of the case, most of the time, the, the other thing I don't like about them typically is that um, people wait for the meetings to make decisions and discuss things. When I think people should be making decisions all the time and discussing things all the time, versus waiting for that moment to finally talk to one another, waiting it, for that moment to finally make a decision. It, it's it funny for me. It's funny you say that because um, this is like a topic that I've been really interested in, and I'm trying to push. I've been trying to push back more on meetings and calls for the sake of calls, and so. You know, just last night I got a I got an email that said, "Hey, um, let's have a meeting. You know, get a calendar invite at you know 10 o'clock, and we're gonna talk about this." And I just replied like, "I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I was like, hey, um, don't you think these are two things that we could probably just trade a couple of emails on and be done with it?" And the person on the other end was like, "You know what? Yeah." And so just like that, you saved a half hour and made a decision. Right, and that I think in almost every case that should be the solution. And then when there is a true, you know, like there's something really deep you got to go into and really set aside time and you want to hear multiple people's perspectives all at the same time and the same level around a table, like that kind of stuff, there are moments for that. But that should be a tool just like any other tool. And it's not a tool you turn to at every, at every turn, but it's a tool you take out when you need it. And I just don't think a lot of meetings are as necessary as people think they are. Um, 
And then what's nice about them is when you don't have them very often, when you do sit down to have one, there's, there's a real sort of gravity around them. Like this is an important moment. Yeah, we need to really dig into this and let's like get into it now. And we're sitting down and this is important. So let's go into it carefully, thoughtfully, and, and thoroughly rather than like we do this all the time. So nothing really matters. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. So anyway, that's my take on it. Yeah. So, so since you're a big fan of this, I'm sure this is something that you guys are, you know, really pushing at your company. How, what are some of the ways that um, you avoid meetings? Are you using like, you know, internal messaging tools? Like uh, give, give people that, that are trying to change the way they work a little bit, some of the ways that they might be able to do this. Yeah, so a lot of it, and there's so many tools, right? So there are sorts of, we use you know, chat tools, we use, we use messaging tools, we use Basecamp, we use a variety of things. We use Skype, we use Google Hangouts, we use all these different tools. Um, and the point is, is that most of the time, they're one-on-one -on -one conversations. So if, I, if I'm talking to a designer um, about some stuff we're working on, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing, whatever works best for us works best. If we happen to be um, in the same place in Chicago, like in the same office, maybe we'll sit down across a table. Maybe if we're not, we'll use Skype, but we're not like, let's, next time we get together, let's meet. It's more like, no, let's talk right now. So what are the tools that we have available to us? Some things a chat's great for, something chat's terrible for. And I actually think that there's this proliferation of, of, of group chat going on right now. It's actually ultimately not a very healthy thing um, because it forces every decision to be sort of knee-jerk and quick, and people feel like they have to get their word in, and if they're not there at the very moment the discussion's happening, they're left out of it, and it's just kind of, sometimes you just need to slow down a little bit, um, gain some traction, write something up long form, give people time to think about it and consider it. So there's like different tool sets for these sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, you, you can And then sometimes we, get, we have meetings, sometimes we do. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say like, sometimes in, like chat is great, but for group decisions, like you kind of get this mob mentality, like if I put something in a, in a chat room to a team, it's like everybody kind of just chimes in just for the hell of it. They kind of feel like they have to right. because they know that it's on a timer yeah. and it's on a conveyor belt. And so if you can imagine a conveyor belt, like if there's a box on a conveyor belt moving by you very slowly and you have to comment on that box before the next box comes up, <laughs> right. you're going to like, you, you know, you've only got like two minutes until that box is out of your line of sight and there's a new box. And so that's, I think, what happens a lot when companies rely purely on and primarily on, and this is happening more and more on sort of rapid fire group chat that's on a conveyor belt. Um, it's a lot of quick jabs on things, which is good in a lot of cases, but it's not good in a lot of cases too. And so I think there's multiple gears in conversations. Sometimes you have the, the high gear where you're rapid firing stuff. Sometimes you have the low gear where you need to slow down, get some traction, take time, put something in an environment where people, where, where you're, you're setting other people up to take time. When everything's on a conveyor belt, you're basically saying, Chime in now, or, you're, or you know, or forever hold your peace because this is off, right. off the screen, three minutes. And it all, and it always seems to be things that like really don't need people's opinion. Like, hey, do you think the the uh, button on this you know web page oh should be this color, right? Yes. Whereas like, and everyone's like, yeah, I like that. No, no, I don't. Whereas if you just made the decision and then like came back a month later and it's like, hey, tested this, here were the results. Now, now let's have a discussion about it. Yes, that's a really good point, which is that. Um, Group chat and that style ends up, it actually creates more nitpicking, um, which can be good sometimes, but oftentimes someone will just chime in and go, this bugs me. And then like eight other people go, yeah, that bugs me too. And two other people go, well, I kind of like it. And right. then you'll end up with this 20 or 30 minute discussion of something that didn't matter enough to have a 30 minute discussion about with seven people. And, and then you've blown up that whole person's day who was like working on that thing because now yes. yeah, they can't just go do it. It creates a lot of anxiety. Now that's, that's not to say like I, 
firm believer in group chat tools. We basically invented the industry in 2006 with Campfire. Like now there's a lot of them out there. Um, I'm, we run our business that way. Um, we have constant communication going on amongst groups using group chat tools. But um, we've also learned since we've been doing it for so long that that is not the best way to discuss a lot, a lot of things. And in fact, it creates discussions that you don't want to have oftentimes. And, and so we've just learned it because we've been doing it for a while. And now we have a different set of tools that helps us. Like we know when to switch gears basically into different kinds of tool sets. So we've gotten good at that, but it does take some practice. Yeah. All right. So, so following the theme of tools, uh, I don't want to give away your whole Ted talk because I'm going to put a link in the show notes and I think everyone should go watch it. But one, one of the things that really fits with this whole topic is that you have, you have this feeling that work doesn't actually happen at work. What does that mean? Um, so in general, I think that if you, if you ask people, um, where they go when they need really, or where they would go when they really needed to get work done. So like if you had to get something done, where would you go? Very few people would say the office, um, because the office is a place where you're often interrupted. That's what the office is. It's a place to be interrupted. Um, either by meetings or phone calls or, or, or people calling your name or loud voices or people walking by the desk or whatever it is. Like they're very, they're very, uh, alive spaces and that's, good in some cases, but oftentimes when you really need to get down to it and do real serious work and that, I don't mean serious, like cutting a hundred million dollar deal. I mean like thinking about something creatively and, and like working through a problem, you, you kind of need, you need private time. You need your mind to get into the right zone. You need to get into it. Um, and, uh, offices typically aren't though, unless you have a private office, but a lot of people don't have that. So they're not great. Sometimes people go in the office really early in the morning or late at, late at night. And the reason they do that or after the, most people leave is because now they have their quiet space. Right. So I just think that typically when people really want to get stuff done, they, they need to be left alone to do that. And offices are not places you go to be left alone. Yeah. And, and so e even like deal. now, I think, I think this Ted talk was maybe four or five years ago. Um, but, but now like technology has just made it so like you can work anytime, anywhere. And so like, it doesn't have to be nine to five, you're sitting at a desk and that's the only time you get your work done. Yeah. Although I think that it's also kind of a toxic situation now that people think work can be done or should be done 24 seven and people should be available to do work whenever it needs to be done. Like, I don't think that's a healthy thing either, but I think that what is, what is fair is that people should be able to time shift themselves. Yeah. So for example, I'm way more creative at night. I'm not really very creative and interesting in the middle of the day. It's just like not my time for that stuff. But when I really need to think through a problem, I like it to be dark out. I like things to be quiet down. I just like that zone. So I do a lot more of my creative work at night, and maybe I'll take an hour or two off in the middle of the day and do something else. Go, go, I think that should be available to everybody. Go back to your whole um, the, the technology and, and working thing, because I actually think you, you bring up a really good point. It's something that you know I see all the time, which is knee-jerk reaction is you're on your phone, you send out an email, at, you're, you're a manager, you send out an email to your team at 10.30 at night, and that kind of triggers this reaction to the team, like, if, if she's working, like, sh should I be working right now? Yes, exactly. And it's funny because um, it's da it's da that's dangerous, and I'll do this myself, and I'll always think like, oh, wait a second. So it's Sunday, and I happen to have a few hours, and I'm doing something, because it's Sunday, I'm just kind of prepping for the week and whatever, and I write something up, and it gets sent out, and I'm like, oh, man. What did I just do? People are going to get this and they're going to think that they have to respond and it's Sunday. Like that's not cool. So actually we're, we're working on an entirely new version of Basecamp right now, which is going to launch shortly. And um, one, of the, one of the tenants is, is that work ends 
And so you can set up your schedule in Basecamp and say, I work from 8 to 6, Monday through Friday. And outside of that zone, don't send me anything. Yeah. Hold it for me. Hold my calls basically until I get back. And um, I think it's a really important thing to give people some control over that. Yeah, and I think like, you know, we, we just sit in front of the computer all day and you just, you get so stressed over that to-do list. But I think the real good stuff happens when you're able to go home at six and just forget about everything and show up the next day. And that's when the creativity happens. Yeah, I think you need, yeah, you need those times away from anything um, in order to let thoughts process. Uh, that's what sleep is best at. Yeah. Sleep, sleep's amazing at that. I mean, that's what your brain needs to do. It needs to disconnect and work things out. And then in the morning, sometimes you have these eureka moments. It's because you slept. It's, that's why. <laughs> and if you don't sleep and if you're always thinking about work, like you don't, right. you, know, you, don't, you don't have Your, your brain was actually able to turn off for eight hours. Like, yeah, it turns off, and it, but it, it actually it, it turns on in other ways, right? It churns through ideas and connects dots and connects things that you never see. And you wake up and you're like, oh, God, I had this idea in the shower. Well, it, it was partially the shower and partially because it was morning. Yeah. Because your brain thought something through deeply overnight and connected stuff that you normally wouldn't be able to connect if you were conscious about it. So anyway, it's neat. It's cool. And I think that more time away is actually leads to more creativity and not, not less. I, I agree. Um, all right. I have a couple, couple other management leadership type stuff, uh, but I want to ask you this since it kind of weaves into the stuff we're talking about. So a lot of this came from your, your book, Rework. Um, I think it was published 2010. A lot's changed in the business world since then. Um, have you had to rethink any of those concepts or do a lot of the same things still apply today where we are in 2015? Um, I think it's the same. I, I don't think the things we wrote about and rework have really changed because I think they're human things. And I think for the most part, humans are, are the same and always pretty much have been. Um, about how to treat people, how to talk about things, you know, integrity, um, basic business sense, uh, ec basic economics 101. Yeah. You know, like it's a lot of fundamental basic things and, and simple ideas and common sense stuff that I think is, is timeless. And what's actually interesting is the book continues to sell um, very well, even though it's five years old. We still hear from people all the time who've just heard about it for the first time and it's completely relevant to them. I think it's a very relevant set of, set of ideas. And, and um, I think if you're talking about technology specifically, things will date very quickly. But if you're talking about human behavior and common sense and how to treat people, how to work with people, that's pretty pretty timeless for the most part. Well, yeah, and to, to your point, they're all, those are a lot of ideas that you had since you were 14 years old. That's the, the concepts are the same. Yeah, right. It's the same. It, these are the same ideas. Um, they're just, you know, now they make more sense. As, if I wrote them when I was 14, they wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. And also they're like tested a bit more, right? So yeah. we've been doing this. The idea behind Rework is everything in Rework is about what we learned over the past 10 years running a business at various scales and various sizes and, and with, starting with three people and going up to 50 where we are now. Although when we wrote the book, we were about 20 or 30. But all the things that we learned along the way and the things we've seen, the things we've observed, and um, these are the things. And, uh, and that's how, how we see the world, and, and um, I think that's pretty much still the same. So another thing that comes with being an author, um, and you do a lot of speaking. Like you, how, one of the things that we talk about, I try to, we try to get some tactical you know, advice in here. So you're out there presenting, speaking all the time. A lot of people hate presenting, uh, you know, not, not even because it's a fear of public speaking, but just like putting together a deck and having slides. How do you get better at that whole process? Uh, practice. 
you just got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it like anything else. If you were to ask someone how do you get good at playing guitar, they would tell you the same thing. And public speaking is the same thing. You got to get out there and practice. And but I think also you got to go listen to people who know how to speak. Just like it's really good to study with someone who's a better guitarist than you are. Spending time at conferences, listening to great speakers. I love watching interviews of people online uh, on YouTube. I used to love doing it on TV. I'm fascinated by people talking about things that they're really knowledgeable about. Um, and when you when you do that, you you see you, you learn you just learn how to do it and how to feel comfortable and how to how to get into your to your zone and, and speak on these things. The other thing I do is um, it took me a while to get to this point, but I've stopped preparing entirely for talks. And the main reason why is because I found that when I prepared too much, I ended up reciting instead of speaking. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask you about that because one of the things that people, myself, if you get caught up over is, is the slides. Like you make, right. you make the slides, you got to stick the slides in the transition. And so does it just come from like if you actually know and are really passionate about the topic that you're presenting on, it, it, it's not like you have to rehearse. You just get up there and talk. Yeah, I mean think, think about this, this call or any call you have with anybody that you know who, who knows something about something. <laughs> you, it just flows. Right. It just flows. You ask questions, you, you talk, you, you go in different directions that you weren't planning on and and um, and it's it's a comfortable thing compared to if you're always looking back into your brain to go what am I supposed to say next because what did I say I was going to say and what have I memorized and oh my god I'm off my game now now I've forgotten the other things and now I I'm, I don't have a crutch and like I, I've run into those situations before where I've tried to memorize something down to the word or whatever and or or, or you have slides and you like start looking back all the time at your slides it's just a, it don't have the crutches know your material. Know what you're talking about and talk about that versus know your slides or, or know your, your memory. You, know, you got to get to the point where you know your stuff really well that you can talk about it from every different direction and then you feel really comfortable at, some, at a certain point. Right, as opposed, to, as opposed to remembering what's in the notes. You're remembering what you're talking about. Yeah, you just know the topic rather than you know your notes, exactly. And it, it takes a while to get there, um, but when you get there, like roll with it. You know, don't feel like, well, I need to keep making slides. Because, like, for example, when I, when I gave my TED Talk, Ted's like, not Ted, there's no guy named Ted. <laughs> the, the organization's like, hey, um, you know, we need your slides. And I'm like, I don't have slides. And like, well, we need, we need slides, so can you just put something in? I'm like, I don't work off slides. That's just, that's the deal. And, and um, what you realize is that, like, you know, you just do it enough and people end up trusting you and you're fine. Everything works out. But... You don't need to keep leaning on what other people tell you need to do to, to be good at what you do. That's kind of the, the, the fundamental message. That if I had slides for that talk, it would have been worse. I promise you. It would have been worse. Because some of the stuff I said in the talk, I ad-libbed a bit. And I felt like it went better. and It, was, it flowed better because of that. And I think that that's really important. All right. All right. Awesome. Well, Jason Freed, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me on cool. the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. If you'd enjoyed it, we'd be pumped if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. Those things really do help us grow the show. I'm Dave Gerhart. You can follow me on Twitter at Dave Gerhart. Always love getting uh, tweets and feedback, suggestions for guests, whatever you want. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.